It is so good to have you guys all here, you guys all there. Thank you for joining us. It's great having you with us. Um, We're in the middle of a sermon series called Wonder Women, and what this series is doing is looking at some of the remarkable women of Scripture. We began two weeks ago with Eve, and the big lesson from Eve's story really is that your worst mistake, your worst moment in life doesn't have to define you. That God is graceful and God is merciful. And even when you completely blow it like Eve surely did, God was still there and offering grace and mercy just as he does to you and I. Last week, we looked at the story of Sarah and Hagar. And the big lesson from Sarah and Hagar was, was that in Sarah's account, remember she was 90 years old when she gave birth to Isaac, her son, Sarah's account really is a testimony of God's timing and God's faithfulness and that we can always, always, always trust in his timing, even when it seems crazy, like a 90-year-old having a baby. Hagar's story is a little bit different. You remember uh, 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 Abram and Sarai at the time took kind of matters into their own hand and, and Hagar uh, gave birth to a son, Ishmael, and eventually she was kind of kicked out of the out of the camp, and she was out in the desert with Ishmael. And the Bible tells us that God heard her crying because they were her son, she thought, was, was dying of thirst. She said, God heard her crying and opened her eyes, and there was a well. And the big lesson from Hagar's story is that God provides, God always provides. And we can count on him. We can trust in his provisions. Sarah could trust in his timing. Hagar could trust in his provisions. Well, that's been the last couple of weeks. Today, we're up to another interesting story. The daughters of Laban, two, two women named Leah and Rachel. Now, let me take a step back. I, I, I suppose every family, if you look deep enough, long enough, far enough back, probably has a scoundrel or a rascal or two in their family tree. Every family has a black sheep. There's a, someone who is an embarrassment, a disappointment, someone who was a, a bit of a... Of a of a scoundrel. In my family, I suppose it would be my great-grandfather. I've told you about him before. He was a gambler. He was an alcoholic. He was, a, uh, he was running from the law in England. This is my dad's grandfather, so my great-grandfather. He was running from the law in England, and he changed our last name. And so the, if, if you run across someone whose last name is Prince, they're not related to me. The only one whose last name are Prince that are related to me are my two sons, my brother, his son and their three and his three boys. That's the only one whose last name is Prince that's related to us because my grandfather changed their name from Pierce to Prince, my great grandfather. So he was he was kind of a scoundrel. That's who we have in our in our history and our in our background. Well, in the Bible it's the same thing. And it doesn't take you very long to get into scripture and to the stories of the Bible in Genesis till you find uh, a few scoundrels and rascals. Last week, we looked at Sarah, who gave birth to Isaac. Isaac was married to Rebekah. Rebekah had two sons, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob, he was the one that was a bit of a scoundrel. Jacob stole his brother's birthright, his inheritance. Stole later the the, the final blessing of his dad uh, that was supposed to go to Esau. It went instead to Jacob because he tricked his dad, his blind dad, who who was about dead. He tricked him. And that was kind of the final straw as far as Esau was concerned relating to his brother Jacob. He was going to kill him. That was it. You know, you stole my birthright. You stole my blessing. I'm going to kill you. And so Jacob took off. You you think your family is dysfunctional. These families put the, the, the dis in dysfunctional, I think. So Jacob takes off and he goes to his uncle's place, Uncle Laban's place. And, and Laban, 
Jacob quickly discovers has two daughters. And this is how the Bible describes him in Genesis 29. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. And the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel, va 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 had a lovely figure and was beautiful. The New Living Translation says, there is no sparkle in Leah's eyes, but Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. What's the worst thing a homely girl can have? A beautiful sister. And I refrain from using the word ugly to describe Leah or that she was you know, hit by an ugly stick or whatever euphemism you want to use there. Ugly is an ugly word. In fact, it's only used twice in the Bible. And neither time is the word ugly used to describe a person. In Genesis 41, it's used to describe the skinny, uh, skinny, ugly cows of Pharaoh, in Pharaoh's dream. And in Revelation 16, it's used to describe the nasty, festering sores on a person. But a person is never described as ugly. And I, I, I think, just my theory, I think the reason for that is that is that in God's word, God's holy word, God understood that people are created in the image of God. And those who are created in the image of God can never, ever be ugly. That is just, it's it's almost blasphemous to think that someone created in the image of God could be described as ugly. That's impossible. So the closest that, that any place though, anywhere gets to kind of describing that, that's right here, it's poor Leah. The Bible writers say that she has tired eyes. What does that mean? The New Living Translation that I read for you meant meant no sparkle in her eyes. And of course, she's in stark contrast in the very same verse. In stark contrast, Leah has tired eyes. And in stark contrast is Rachel, her drop-dead gorgeous sister. If God's holy word says you are beautiful, says you have a lovely face and a beautiful figure, then you, my friend, are a hottie and there's no getting around it. That's just you. A while back, uh, a guy from the church, I made some kind of comment how People Magazine um, uh, made a mistake on their Sexiest Man Alive uh, 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 cover, and I made some sort of comment like that, and so Joe Wagner uh, fixed People Magazine to, to reflect the, how it should have been all along. <laughs> and, I so, and I've been trying to convince Carla that that is the actual copy, but she has not bought it, so... <laughs> You know, that's just stupid. Leah didn't have, she didn't have anyone with Photoshop. She couldn't, uh, you know, airbrush any blemishes away for a glamour shot. She's described as old tired eyes. Some Bible scholars think that means that she cried a lot, that that's why she's referred to that. Or others believe that it's a a euphemism for for not pleasing to look at, Uh, kind of homely. Now, I don't know for sure what it means, but I know this, if... If you're crying a lot, you're probably not at your best. And, and just for argument's sake, I think we can say that, that poor Leah was, was probably very, very homely. And she's done no favors by her name. A guy by the name of, of Herbert Lockyer gave his life to analyzing the names of people in the, in the Bible. And he believes that Leah comes from two different words. The first word meaning weary. The second word meaning wild cow. Now, I don't know very many women who would like to be uh, associated and named, you know, weary wild cow, but that's Leah. So she has this drop-dead gorgeous sister, Rachel, and then there's old weary wild-eyed cow, Leah. I think we can understand the, the dynamics of sibling rivalry. 
and the sad, sad conclusions that can, can come from that and what maybe even the conversation around Laban's dinner table would have been like. So shortly after Jacob arrives, after he cheated his brother out of his birthright and his blessing, he takes off and hightails it to his, his mother's people. And that's how he ends up in this place called Pad Anaram, which is, is where Laban lived. And he isn't there very long before he, he runs into his uncle and, and discovers that he has these daughters. And when he gets one look at Rachel, it's, it's love at first sight. Cupid doesn't need to fling any arrows. It was love at first sight. Now, for those of you who are following this family tree, you're thinking, their first cousins. Ooh, that's kind of weird. Their, their first cousin is Pan Ram in West Virginia, Arkansas maybe. I don't know. Their first cousins. Well, just remember, Genesis, not many, not many options around. So Jacob was, was, was desperately in love. And, and there was a problem, though. He had taken off, remember, kind of hastily from his brother and family. And so he, he made his way to Pan Anaram, and, and that's where he was. But he didn't have any money. And, and the custom in those days, it, when we were here at Christmas time, we were talking about Joseph and Mary. And one of the customs of the days was to, to pay a bride price a mohar. And usually a bride price was a amount, it wasn't a small amount of money. It was enough to buy a, like a, probably a single room home. Well, Jacob, he, he wouldn't have had that kind of money because he took off in such a, a flash. So he didn't have a bride price to pay. And, and usually that bride price went to compensate. Remember, it's an agricultural society. And so you'd give it to the bride's family to compensate them for the loss of their daughter in their home because the daughter would have been not only uh, helping out with household chores, but often was, was kind of a field hand as well. So that bride price went to pay them off so that, that, that she could get married. But Jacob didn't have it. And so he worked out a deal with his uncle Laban that he would kind of do the installment plan and, and he would work for seven years. Um, and, and then at the end of those seven years, he would be done with his, his work and Rachel could then be his wife. The Bible says it this way. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Man, we should have kept the violinists up here, you know, and they could have just been playing right then. That would have been awesome. You know, this is almost like a made-for-TV special on Lifetime. Here we go. It seemed like, you know, time just flittered by. Seven years seemed like nothing because Rachel was so wonderful and Jacob worked so, you know, it just flew by. Yahoo! Well, as you know this story, old Laban had some tricks up his sleeves. And the big wedding day arrived. Seven years after hard labor seemed like, you know, a day. And there was eating and there was drinking. And Laban pulled the old bait and switch. Rachel was the bait. Leah was the switch. And because in, in, in the wedding tent was not Rachel, like Jacob thought, but Leah. Old tired eyes, wild cow, Leah. And, and I, I don't know. I don't know how drunk you have to be to realize that this is not, you know, beautiful Rachel, but old cow Leah. I don't know. I've never been drunk, and so I don't know exactly how that works. But I would think that, you know, you would know these things, but apparently not. Because in the light of morning, and now presumably sober Jacob discovers that he's been played. And Laban had seized the opportunity to kill two birds with one stone. He got his homely daughter married off, got, Laban, or got Jacob to work another seven years for, for him for free. Perfect plan. 
But how do you think Leah felt in the midst of all that? That she was a pawn in her daddy's scheme, a bargaining chip in the high-stakes game of poker with, with Jacob. How do you think it made her feel to think that her dad's opinion was the only way she was going to get married off is if he played a trick on somebody? And in the morning, following the wedding, how did old, tired eyes Leah feel when Jacob discovered that he hadn't married Rachel? If tired eyes means crying, that she wept a lot, I think the waterworks were in overdrive that next morning, don't you? Growing up, my sisters had to share a bathroom. We had one bathroom for six of us. Uh, That's nothing. These sisters are sharing a husband. She felt, and Leah, for poor Leah, uh, again, this family dysfunction. But for her, she felt unloved. Her husband worked seven years for her sister. I was working another seven years because he doesn't want to be married to her. No doubt she felt rejected and humiliated. She was the loser in sibling rivalry. Her self-esteem had to be at an all-time low. Again, no wonder, no wonder, no wonder she's called old tired eyes. But the Bible goes on to say this in chapter 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved. Again, let that sink in for a minute. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved. He enabled to have six children, or seven children, six boys, one girl. Remember, was placed on if she was able to have children, boys in particular. And so no doubt with each baby, Leah thought, all right, now, now, as her sister was unable to conceive, now, maybe now, Jacob will love me. Now, maybe now, he'll take notice of me. Now, some love, if Leah was so unloved, where'd all these babies from? She had sex. But her tent was no more romantic than a, than a breeding stable. In that culture, having children meant status for the man. It was an important part of their, their, their wealth. You had to have a lot of boys. And Leah would be able to teach our culture that there's a big difference between sex and love. Sometimes our culture misses that. And Leah truly was a wonder woman. If by that we mean she displayed tremendous amount of hope an unbelievable resiliency in spite of her circumstances. Listen to how she names her children. In, in Genesis 29, verse 32, it says this. Leah became pregnant, gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben. For she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Reuben sounds like the Hebrew word for has seen my misery. So she names him Reuben, has seen my son. Look, 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 Jacob, I gave you a firstborn. He's a boy. I, I, I fulfilled part of the duty, right? Will you love me now? Apparently not. Verse 33, she conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Simeon sounds like one who hears in, in Hebrew. God hears me. God knows what's going on. Still hopeful. Jacob, I've given you two sons now. There's Reuben, there's Sibian. Do, do you love me? God has heard me. Do you hear me? Apparently not. Verse 34. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So she named him Levi. Levi sounds like the Hebrew word for attached. Jacob, I've given you three sons. 
Surely we're connected now. Surely you, you love me. Surely you will honor me now after three, three, three sons. But apparently not. Verse 35, she conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said this. So she named him Judah. Still no love from Jacob. I'm talking about a resiliency. Later, she would go on to have more children. She'd have two very beautiful, her stories told. That's a bad story. So Leah, seven fully demonstrated when Jacob problems, Esau wanted to kill him. And so he plans on giving him uh, hands as they're giving March. This is what the Bible says. Jacob looked up, coming with his four. Now he's got 400 men. They're servants and kids. Two female servants. He put the children in front. Least and Rachel and Joseph. If anybody else missed the, the, the significance of the marching orders, Leah, I'm sure, did not. The slaves, they'd be the first one to face, to get it within, with back, way, way, way in the back, protected from all that, was Rachel and her son Joseph. It illustrates exactly. We don't have, have multiple wives. We don't have servants. You know, the worldly, for the people who felt un who have thought of themselves as valueless or worthless, who, who in a sibling rye. If the people who are supposed to love me don't love me, Leah's husband. And the people who am I doing here? Scenarios. The hope comes. Remember all those babies she had. Uh, uh, Levites were the ones who were the mediators between God and his people, Israel. Spends forgiveness every year on the Day of Atonement. It was very special. The priestly class all came from Leah. Her third-born son, Zebulon, he became what many believe as the, um, the ancestor to sailors. Some think that the clan of Zebulon sailed uh, the Atlantic Ocean long, long, long before Christopher Columbus in 1492. But maybe the son that made Leah most proud was that lion of a son, Judah. Judah became the ruler of his brothers, even Rachel's boys. Judah became the founder of the nation, And it was from Leah and her son Judah. The New Testament says, in the fullness of time, Jesus came. One of the titles for Jesus is the Lion of Judah. You see, my my point through all this is maybe Jacob didn't choose Leah. But God did. And the struggles of her life takes on added significance in in light of Jesus. Through Leah and, and, and Judah and his descendants... Jesus came into the world. Leah's life teaches us, if it teaches us anything, it teaches us a really important lesson. And that is sometimes we don't always see the fruit of our labor. Sometimes God does. Sometimes God lets us see, you know, what we've done and lets us see that. Sometimes he gives us a glimpse, but not always. And for a lot of people who faithfully serve day in, day out, and our enemy perches on their shoulder and says something like, you're not making a difference, you're insignificant, no one notices, don't ever believe that. God knows the contributions you're making to his kingdom. And when you think that, that the people that you're trying to influence for Jesus aren't listening, they're listening. And when you think that they're not watching, they're watching. Your life is important. It matters. And I'm convinced that there are people that God has placed in your life that you can influence for the kingdom. That you are the best person to influence them. And now I know, I know God is a graceful God and a merciful God. And if we blow it, he's got to plan A, B, C, and D. But I think that, that there are people in your life that God has placed in your life that you can make a difference in the kingdom of God for. I think that's true for every one of us. And just like Leah, 
I think we, we may be sometimes placed in very difficult, difficult, tough uh, situations where we don't get the accolades and we don't, we don't even get the love. But from Leah, unattractive, unwanted, unloved, unappreciated, utterly ordinary, came the Lion of Judah. Leah represents the quiet contributions of, of those folks who keep on praying and keep on believing and keep on serving and keep on giving, usually behind the scenes with no fanfare or accolades or recognition or a parade. And they just serve. They just serve Jesus and they love Jesus and they, they are givers. And I tell you what, as a pastor, every, every church I've ever been, we need more and more Leahs. You see, Leah's story reminds us that, that God doesn't care if you're a beauty queen or not. It's just really not on high on his priority list. You see, because everyone, again, everyone is beautiful in his eyes. There is no one ugly created in the image of God. And Jesus isn't impressed by that the, the, the folks on this old world recognize your abilities. What matters is that God recognizes. So it's not how we look. It's not even what we do or what we say. Ultimately, what matters is the Lord of life. Who has captivated our hearts? That's what ultimately matters. Jesus points out this truth. Do you remember as he was wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount, greatest sermon ever preached, and, and he's, he's giving really an illustration of heaven, who's in and who's out. Usually we like to think of sermons wrapping up with, you know, this little warm-hearted, nice little story, and then send us on our way. But that's not what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. He ends it on a rather disturbing fashion, especially if you are a... a, a a person who is a good, hard-working churchgoer like me. Listen to, to Jesus' words in Matthew 7. Not everyone who calls on me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of the Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, and we cast out demons in your name, and we performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. In other words, just saying those words, Lord, Lord, that, that doesn't get you in. Jesus didn't say it this way, but he could have talked as cheap. And you can talk, 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 what a wonderful Christian you are, what a wonderful person you are, whatever, talk is cheap. And Jesus is saying, what is, your, what is the fruit in your life show? That's what makes a difference. Show me your fruit. It would have been a whole lot easier if Jesus would have just said, yeah, that's all you need. Just say, Lord, Lord, and you can enter into heaven. I mean, that would make it easy. Say the, say the magic words and bingo, you get to go in. Just say, Lord, Lord, and poof, you're in. And that sounds like something that I quote. I quote the scripture all the time from the Apostle Paul. Paul in Romans 10 said, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That sounds like it's contradicting what Jesus just said. Jesus says, Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter into heaven. Paul says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will enter into heaven. Are those contradictory statements? You see the dilemma? Are they mutually exclusive? How can you do both? Well, Paul is right. Everyone who sincerely calls out to God will be saved. And Jesus is right. Not everyone who says those words is being sincere. See, merely saying the words, following the formula, isn't good enough according to Jesus. Because God doesn't look at just simply our words or even our actions. Remember when we were in uh, David, looking at David's life last fall, we looked at that familiar verse in 1 Samuel 16 that said, said, the Lord doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so Jesus says, listen, what matters isn't what you say. What matters isn't how you look. What matters isn't even your actions. In this passage, he said, on judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. But I'll reply, I never knew you. Get away from me. 
Those are pretty impressive actions, don't you think? Prophesying in Jesus' name, working miracles in Jesus, casting out demons in Jesus' name. Let's take a poll. Who prophesied in Jesus' name this last year? Anyone? No, better yet. Who, who did a miracle last year? Just raise your hand. Everybody, right now, raise them up. Raise them high. Who cast out a demon? Let's see them. Oh, there's one kid way back there. Great, awesome. What's wrong with you people? No demons cast out? Jesus said, these people who perform these really miracle type of things, I mean, did all these mighty things, and they came to Jesus and said, Lord, Lord, we, we cast, we're a demon caster outer. We're a miracle worker. We prophesied. We did all these awesome things. And they expected Jesus to say, wow, that's great. We've got a front row seat in heaven for you. But that's not at all what Jesus said. In fact, he said, get away from me, you evildoers. That's how the NIV version reads, you evildoers. When I think of evildoer, I think of murderer, rapist, child molester. Those are evildoers. Not people who are prophesying, not people who are, who are doing miracles, not people who are casting out demons. Think of all the good things you did last year, even if you didn't cast out a demon. You know, I, I helped at Dylan, I, I worked in the food pantry, I went on a mission trip, I taught, uh, uh, you know, preteen boys. You, know, you get a special present. Forget chest, now demons. I was in the preteen boys Sunday school class. Think of all those things. Compared to that list that Jesus just gave. Demon chaser outers, miracle workers, prophesiers. It really doesn't stack up. You know, uh, I, I can barely turn water into steam, let alone turn water into wine. It doesn't work for me. Jesus' point is simple. Only God's opinion matters. And if God isn't getting the glory, if it's not the name of Jesus that's being lifted high, then all those other things are garbage, garbage, garbage. On Jesus' point, who gets the glory through all of this? What does this have to do with Leah? God's not into looks. Leah reminds us God's not into looks. And God's not into appearances, and God's not into simply words or exteriors or facades. You don't impress God by a phony smile. You don't impress God by the clothes you wear. You don't impress God by the car you drive. My point is Leah faithfully followed God. No accolades, no recognition, no special ceremonies, not a single parade. Most of her life, she felt unloved and overlooked, but God honored her. And it was through her and her son Judah that Jesus came. I guess my question is, is, are by your words, by your actions, by your life, is Jesus being lifted up? Because that's what really matters. I think that's the message of Leah. We can trust that God hears us, God loves us, God has a wonderful plan for us. Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your great love. We're thankful that we can trust in you. We pray that you would live within us and that if there's anything at all that we've done outside of your love, that you would forgive and move and work in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.